So I think that when we come out of this and when we get back to touring, especially in live events, uh, I think there's going to be a really refreshed perspective about how we can best take care of our artists and make sure that everyone is physically, mentally, emotionally well, and also creating great music that can provide for everyone and lead to happy careers. Hey guys, welcome to How Music Charts, where we pull back the curtain on today's music business, exploring music industry trends, music data, and the creativity that helps your favorite artists hit the charts. I'm your co-host Rutger, and you'll hear from our other co-host Jason soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help the music industry leverage the power of data analytics. In honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, on this episode, we talked to Camille Lopez Silvero about the article she wrote for the Chartmetric blog entitled The Under 27 Club, Music and Mental Health in the Streaming Era. Lopez Silvero is a 2021 Global Entertainment and Music Business Master of Arts candidate at the Berklee College of Music program in Valencia, Spain, and a 2020 Northwestern University graduate. She currently serves as the head of marketing and branding at Disruption Records, an independent student-run record label based out of Berkeley's graduate campus. She has previously interned at Paradigm Talent Agency in their Chicago office and a host of diverse intern stints, including a New York-based creative digital agency, Swell Shark, branding company Siegel & Gale, investment firm Loeb Enterprises, and startup Thinks. So without further ado, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Camille Lopez Silvero. Thank you for that introduction, Rucker. I'm happy to be here. We're happy to have you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, so for starters, what uh, compelled you to pursue uh, an education career in the music industry? Yeah, so I guess it started very early on. Uh, so I was raised in a multicultural household. Uh, my mom is from France. My dad is from Cuba. So at an early age, music was kind of the universal language across both sides of my family. So when we would get together, we were always listening to music. Uh, even though there was some language barriers, that was the way that we could all spend time together and enjoy each other's company. So music was always a really integral part of my life growing up. Uh, and then by the time I got to Northwestern, I actually studied comparative literature and entrepreneurship. Um, I was still kind of figuring out what I wanted to do, but then that's where I kind of figured out that music really was my calling and I could take my background and even my studies in entrepreneurship and literature and morph it into a career in the music industry. And that's what inspired me to apply for an internship at Paradigm, uh, which gave me a really good overview into the live industry. Um, and then while I was interning there, I realized that I need to know a lot more about the music industry if I want to work here. So that's why I applied to Berkeley Valencia for this master's program. Uh, and then right after graduating, pretty much, I came to Spain and did this master's program. And now I'm graduating in about a month. Uh, and I feel like I've learned a ton over the past year. So I'm excited to really dive into the industry and get started. So congratulations, by the way, on your, your upcoming you. graduation. How's it going? How's the post-COVID um, industry looking like to you as a recent graduate or about to be graduate? I think it's really exciting. Uh, I think if I had done this program two years ago, right pre-COVID, it would have been completely different. Um, 
So it's been interesting doing this program while they're trying to adapt to this new virtual world. But at the same time, it's been super helpful because I'm learning how to organize virtual events or market and brand an artist from scratch completely without any live uh, any live concerts or live events. Um, so it's definitely forced us to get really creative. Um, it's also been really nice. We've had access to a lot of guest speakers that we normally wouldn't have because of this new virtual mode. So we got to speak with Scooter Braun and work with Noel or Yvette Noel Scherer, who's Beyonce's publicist. So we've got to interact with really cool people from all different aspects of the music industry. And I think part of that is because we're having these online interactions. That's a really good point. Um, there's there's pros to it too, right? Um, yeah. Funny you mentioned Scooter Brown. I just I just watched the uh, Amazon Prime documentary on Jay Balvin. Have you seen that one yet? Not yet. He, he pops up in it. Scooter Brown. Yeah. He's everywhere. He's in there. He's everywhere, right? <laughs> so um, we're about to get into the article that you wrote for the blog, but we just want to want to kind of frame kind of you know your 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 passion in it. So you know, this subject of mental health that that you wrote about in the music industry, um, especially as it pertains to artists. Because certainly there, there's an aspect of that for people on the, the business side of it as well, for sure. But in terms of like the artist side, you know, why is that subject important to you? And, you know, to you, like, why does mental health awareness matter? Yeah. So in the past, I think topics like depression and substance abuse were very taboo. Uh, and especially in the music industry, which really has always profited off of sensationalized stories of like wild parties, reckless behavior, substance abuse and all of that. Um, and I feel like this is really evident when you look back at the legacy of the 27 Club. And nowadays we look at artists like Amy Winehouse and Kurt Cobain as musical icons. But really, if you take a closer look at their careers and their ultimate deaths, you see that there's this huge failure in the music industry, uh, a failure to provide support for artists' mental health or prioritize their well-being. And the cost has been the lives of countless young artists. Uh, and so I think when I was younger, I kind of attributed the 27 Club to this like wild drug fueled rock and roll heyday of the record industry. Uh, but the reality is, is that these problems still persist today, um, especially in the past five years. I think we've seen this problem really magnify. So we've lost a lot of artists, some of which I wrote about in my article, but like, you know, Avicii, Lil Peep, Juice World, Mac Miller, more recently, MF Doom. Um, and all of these deaths were caused because of mental health issues or substance abuse issues. Um, and now I think because we live in such a digital and interconnected world, these deaths are hyper sensationalized on social media and the news. And as I demonstrate in my article, sometimes an artist catalog or most of the times their catalog really increases in value after their death. So I was really interested at looking at the, the mechanisms behind this and who's really profiting off of this and I think there's this fine line between honoring an artist and their legacy and kind of taking advantage of a tragedy to, for profit. Um, so that's what I really wanted to look at in my article and really just highlight the fact that there's a huge room for improvement within the industry on the mental health front. Um, but I also acknowledge the strides that have already been made. Um, so, you know, one of the benefits of social media and global interconnectedness is that people feel a lot more comfortable addressing tough issues like mental disorders. Um, and I think nowadays people really demand authenticity and transparency. So the music industry can't exist in its own bubble of secrecy anymore. And we have to start talking about these issues. Uh, and I think artists really want to talk about these issues. And we saw this when Justin Bieber was performing in a glass box on stage or Taylor Swift takes a hiatus from social media 
for a year almost. Uh, I think that artists are really being vocal with their audiences about this need for more mental health support. Uh, and there are some companies that are doing a great job. So I talked about um, Dreamville, which offers meditation sessions and access to therapists for their artists. And I think that these are really good examples that we can follow um, looking forward for the future of the music industry. So in his song, Legends, Juice World, whose data you examine in your article, raps, um, what's the 27 club? We ain't making it past 21. You write about the under 27 club, which is essentially your analysis of a new music industry mythology surrounding artists dying too young. What is, can you explain the 27 club a little bit more and why this lyric from Juice World is so ominous and poignant? Yeah, so the 27 Club, the term really came about in the 70s, in the early 70s, when four music, you know, musician legends, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Brian Jones, and Jimi Hendrix all passed away within two years of each other at the age of 27. Uh, and this really sparked this almost conspiracy theory of the music industry being so toxic almost that artists won't make it past 27 or they'll die at this age of 27. And since then, the 27 Club has grown enormously and it encompasses a lot of artists who tragically died at the age of 27. Uh, but nowadays, as we've seen with these artists that I talk about in my article, a couple of whom died under the age of 22, is that these issues are just growing even more. Uh, there's a lot more pressures that come with having your whole world out there on social media. Uh, I think people rise to fame a lot quicker now. Um, and there are certain people, certain artists who aren't necessarily built to handle that level of fame and it could lead them down dangerous paths of substance abuse um, or even surrounding themselves with toxic relationships within the industry. Um, and I think that that hasn't disappeared. And if anything, the problem has only gotten worse now. So I think it's about time that we talk about it and do something about it. Do you think the reasons for artists dying young have changed over time? Or is there something that's sort of constant in terms of something that's highly correlative with being a musician or an artist? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I do think that the music industry attracts people. It attracts artists who are already uh, experiencing emotions on a deeper level, maybe, or they're more prone to mental illness or mental disorders. Uh, and a lot of times that's why people turn to music because it's a healthy outlet for them to express themselves uh, and to deal with these painful emotions. Uh, but I think it's also leads to the potential for toxic relationships, like I mentioned. Uh, and sometimes artists find themselves surrounded, surrounded by people who view them more as a product and less as a person. And that's where it can get really dangerous. Uh, and I think we really need to find that balance between, of course, you want to profit off of the artists you're working with, because at the end of the day, a lot of people need to make a living off of that artist and their music. But at the same time, you want to protect them and make sure that they're mentally healthy and emotionally healthy so that they can have a long and fulfilling career. And how do you feel about the argument that the live fast, die young, or like the tortured artist or unstable genius um, tropes are what enable great art. Like, do you, do you think there's anything to that or can really profound artistry happen with stability and responsibility and good health? Yeah, I think 
I mean, it's really both. I think the tortured artist trope isn't going to go anywhere, but a big reason why people are drawn to that, I think, is because they see artists talking about issues that they feel, but they're too afraid to speak out about. So when you have an artist like Juice World or Lil, Lil Peep rapping about being depressed uh, and taking drum, drugs to numb the pain, I think a lot of young people can relate to that. Uh, so I do think it's important to talk about these issues, but at the same time, I think sometimes when artists are speaking about these issues, we have to pay attention to that and maybe help them access the help they need. Because uh, ultimately, I do think that it's possible to do both and be honest about your struggles, uh, be open with your audience and be open with the world about that, but still have a long and enduring career. And I think it would be really interesting to see an artist go through those issues and then come out the other end and be able to be honest with their audience about what helped them get through those tough periods. And what role do you think social media and streaming play in the growth of the under 27 club, especially as it pertains to uh, the mental health of artists writ large? Yeah, that's a tough question. It's really a double-edged sword, in my opinion, uh, kind of like what I was saying earlier. On the one hand, it's a great platform for people to have open conversations about how they're feeling or issues that they see in the industry or in their personal lives. But on the other hand, it's also a breeding grounds for comparison. Um, and I think a lot of artists experience more burnout now because not only are they expected to make music, but they're also expected to be a brand and post on social media constantly and engage with their fans across multiple platforms. Uh, so I think it's really important to just be aware that there's a lot more responsibility for artists now and they really have to sell themselves in a way on these platforms to be successful with their music. So it's, it's a fine line between putting on a show and putting on a persona for your audience and being authentically true to yourself and making sure that you're taking care of yourself. And I think the Taylor Swift example of taking a hiatus from social media says a lot that you can prioritize your mental health and take a step back and come back. But I wonder if that only works for an artist who's already at that level of fame. I'm thinking more of if an emerging artist or a grassroots artist is struggling with these issues, they might not have the same freedom to focus on their well-being. Let's get a little bit more into the article and some of the finer points that you get into. So just for those who haven't read it yet, um, so you highlight three case studies, Juice World, who died at 21 in 2019, Lil Peep, who died at 21 in 2017, and Mac Miller, who died at 26 in 2018. Um, so we'll go through them, you know, if you can give a little bit of context of kind of like what was going on um, before their passing, um, that'd be great. But right now, can we, can you talk a little bit um, about Juice World and, and, and what his career was like and who he was to his fans before his death? Juice World was a rapper, singer, artist who really spoke about, honestly, about depression, heartbreak and substance abuse. And I think this is what really drew his fans towards him, but he also was a pioneer for the emo rap scene, uh, which kind of blew up in 2017, or it came around in 2016, blew up around 2017, 2018. Uh, and Juice World was definitely one of the four figures of that movement. You know, I think people were really drawn to him because he was talking about these tough issues, but also making music that felt like it almost contrasted the lyrics in a way. You have this upbeat music, but these really heavy lyrics. 
So, yeah, he started off uploading tracks on SoundCloud uh, and including his hit song Lucid Dreams, which he first uploaded on SoundCloud and it racked up a ton of streams on that platform. And then due to that popularity of Lucid Dreams, he signed a record deal with Interscope, which then re-released his track Lucid Dreams and from there Juice World's career just skyrocketed. But it was short-lived because it was only a couple months after he signed to Interscope that he died of uh, accidental, well, you know, I put that in air quotes, accidental drug overdose at the Chicago airport. With Juice World's death happening and seeing this crazy spike in a lot of his um, music and his digital presences online as like a either just like a, a surgence of interest or, or a surge of um, reminiscing for someone, you know, who passed that, you know, everyone was a big fan of. What do you feel like is uh, a proper way for a rights holder, you know, whether that be, you know, a management team or a label or, or what have you to still represent his work. And, you know, I don't think it's wrong, especially if, you know, their work is connected to like an estate for, you know, for, for a family or loved ones, um, for them to continue to make business, but at the same time, respect the artist's legacy. That's another one of these fine line topics where I think most of the times the common practice is to uh, transfer the rights to the estate or family members, which is usually specified in the artist contract with the label at the time of the signing. Uh, but I think oftentimes when an artist is getting signed to a label, especially someone like Juice World, who uh, was signed really quickly in response to this big surge in fame on SoundCloud. So a lot of times those clauses are kind of briefly skimmed over in the contract and not too much thought is put into them. Um, so I think, yeah, with, with posthumous releases or any of this stuff after the artist passes, it's, it's important to continue listening to their music to carry on their legacy. Um, but at the same time, you want to make sure that the money is going into the right hands or going towards the right causes. Yeah, no, totally. So uh, Lil Peep is another artist that um, you talk about in the article. Can you just give us a brief kind of summary of Lil Peep's career before his passing? Yeah, so Lil Peep was another leading figure in the emo rap scene. And he, similarly to Juice World, came onto the scene really fast, blew up really fast, and then tragically passed away in uh, 2017. Uh, so he passed away on November 15th, 2017, also of a drug overdose. And in the past, he rapped a lot about his issues with substance abuse, and he had some uh, some scares with drug overdose, but not uh, leading to death until November 15th. But he was similarly to Juice World's really inspiring figure for a lot of young people who felt like they were being heard and their feelings of depression were being echoed by someone that they looked up to in the music industry. Uh, but the interesting thing with Lil Peep is that after he passed, his mother actually sued his manager and his tour manager for negligence, breach of contract and wrongful death. Um, and she she alleged that they uh, knew he was burnt out, exhausted, physically unwell, mentally unstable, and they still encouraged him to take illegal drugs to subdue his feelings and carry on uh, producing music, making music, and uh, 
keep keeping up with his growing career. And so she alleges that this ultimately led to his death. Um, and we saw similar trends with him, as we saw with Juice World following his death, his his SoundCloud streams and his Spotify followers and listeners spiked drastically. Yeah, with Lil Peep, you know, it went from 2K, uh, 2,000 uh, Wikipedia views daily to 1.2 million, which is insane. Um, Spotify followers gone from 250,000 to almost 7 million um, in the four years since his passing. Um, you did mention SoundCloud, but it, it did seem to be less significant uh, of uh, a spike, if you will, of, of interest, um, though still, still substantial. Um, have you put any thought into like the differences in platforms and why we would see, you know, kind of like a, a difference in that reaction to uh, Lil Peep's death? Yeah, so I think that SoundCloud is really a discovery platform first and foremost. Uh, so artists who get on there, you know, they're independent artists most of the time, not signed to a big label. A lot of times it's just artists who are creating music at home and they want to upload it onto another platform. It's a lot of creators go on SoundCloud um, or really big music fans. And I think Spotify is a lot better for back catalog. Uh, so it's great for discovery as well, but also because of its enormous catalog, that's where people can really go and stream anything. So to me, it makes a lot of sense that his Spotify listeners and followers spiked a lot because he wasn't putting out new music necessarily on SoundCloud, but people could go back and listen to his old catalog on Spotify. And then of course his posthumous releases were released on DSP. So they weren't released on, on SoundCloud. So that would also make sense why those platforms, specifically Spotify, grew more significantly than SoundCloud. You also talk about Mac Miller um, and his posthumous release. You know, that account for, for bigger, you know, spikes of interest on Spotify and YouTube. Can you talk a little bit about Mac Miller and um, his career and then his passing and what you saw happen afterwards? Yeah, so Mac Miller is quite a different example um, just because he had a, a decade-long career before his passing. Um, and so... Early on in his career, uh, you know, 2010, 2011, he was releasing albums that were considered like frat boy music at the time. So about living that good life and partying with your friends, uh, just really upbeat, easygoing music. Uh, but then as he developed as an artist, he started getting a lot more substantial with his lyrics and talking about his personal issues with depression, substance abuse, um, mental illness and all of that. And his career really was on the up, you know, from 2015 to, to 2018, when he passed, he released three albums that charted on the Billboard 200. Um, you have Good AM, The Divide Feminine and Swimming. Uh, and I think those albums were widely considered to be a really big turning point for his career. And people were really starting to view Mac Miller as a, a serious rapper to watch. And then he unfortunately passed in 2018 on September 7th of a drug overdose. And this was really shocking to fans because prior to his passing, he was really vocal about his issues with substance abuse, but he was adamant that he was getting help um, and really trying to work on himself. Uh, so it was a big shock when he passed. And then almost a year and a half after his passing, uh, his label and his estate released Circles, the posthumous album that was kind of like the bookend to Swimming. That release of Circles corresponded to these big spikes also on his Spotify listeners and followers. And in the article, I also talk about his 
YouTube videos. I think towards the end of his career, he was putting out these really incredible YouTube videos and it led to a lot of traction for him on YouTube. And I talk specifically about his video, Self Care. So this is a song that's really poignant, really poignant lyrics about uh, mental illness and feeling trapped. And then the video shows him in a coffin smoking a cigarette. So it's this really eerie foreshadowing to his death. And then after he passed, his YouTube views got a lot of traction. I think that's because people were going back and trying to find these hints of what he was struggling with in his videos and in his songs. We, we talk a little bit about the 20, uh, the 27 Club, and it was a very different you know, era in terms of just like sharing you know, topics like this publicly depression and anxiety and how much public figures were willing to share a lot of these kind of intimate details about their kind of like inner life. You know, I I can't help but think about uh, that, that documentary I mentioned on Amazon prime. So with uh, Jay Balvin, I actually didn't know, I had no idea that this is something that he actually talks about um, a lot, apparently through social media. Um, I am probably just like most, you know, mainstream people. And I just, you know, heard the jams and thought he was all about fun and partying. Um, but it, that was basically the theme that that documentary revolved around. I mean, within the first maybe 10 minutes, he starts talking about like his anxiety, um, you know, plot wise, like it, it revolves around like him doing this big show in his hometown of Medellin. Um, but it's really about like this anxiety he's feeling because there's like local protests going on because of, um, just like the issues going on in the country and him being silent about it and him, the way he's perceived, uh, on social media and how it gets to him and all these things, you know, for those artists who are still fortunately with us, like Jay Belvin, I think, you know, what do you feel like is a, a really good way to, to navigate that space? You know, have you seen good examples or, uh, maybe examples that maybe, you know, those who are still with us can learn from in terms of how they share these things, you know, how, how, how do fans react to those kinds of things? Um, or on the other side of the coin, do fans just want to hear the party jams? You know, do they maybe not care about some of these kind of darker themes? What's your kind of take on that kind of artist fan connection regarding topics like depression? Yeah, I think fans really want to hear that and they need to hear that because they want to know that the people they look up to and the stars that they idolize are humans too. And they experience the same the same things that all of us regular humans experience. So I think it's really important if an artist wants to engage with their fans on a deep and genuine level, they, they have to be honest about these things. And I look at someone like Billie Eilish as a, a really positive example. Um, and I can't help but compare a little bit to Justin Bieber and his career path. So on the one hand, with Justin Bieber, you have this kid who was kind of brought through this roller coaster ride of fame on his own, sur- really surrounded by industry people, but not too much surrounded by friends or grounded in a strong family life. Um, And we saw that really take a toll on him. And luckily he came out the other end of that and seems to be in a really great place now, but that was a really painful public struggle that he went through. And then on the flip side, you see someone like Billie Eilish, who was around the same age when her career started taking off. Um, But I see that she's really surrounded by her family. She's grounded in her home life. So she has this one foot in reality in the everyday world and the other in this superstar world of the music industry. And at the same time, she's being very honest on social media, on Instagram, talking about her issues with depression, um, with Tourette's, with body dysmorphia, feeling shame about her body. Um, And a lot of things that a lot of people go through and a a lot of emotions that a lot of people feel uh, on an everyday level. 
And I think that it's been really beneficial for her and her fans. And I think it's one of the big reasons why she has developed this huge dedicated fan base. Cool. So as we think about the past, present and future of music and mental health, do you have a read on what the state of mental health support for artists was at the height of, say, the 27 Club compared to what it is today with the growing under 27 Club? I mean, I have to I have to say that or assume that for the 27 Club, there was no mental health support. It was kind of like you're either made for the music industry and you can survive it or you can't. Uh, and there wasn't really too much sympathy for these artists. I think the media at the time was really cruel towards these artists. Uh, people were just eating up their downfall. Whereas I think now it's it's a really open conversation that we're having about mental health in the music industry. And I think a lot of companies and record labels are taking active steps to solve these issues. Um, so I talk about one company in my article, Shading the Limelight, which is a company specifically focused on providing wellness solutions to artists across all fields in the entertainment sector. So that's one option. Another option would be for labels or music companies to hire in-house therapists or subsidize therapy for their artists or offer things like meditation sessions, yoga sessions, just overall encouraging well-being. So I'm seeing a lot of positive changes and I think it's moving slowly still, but with this new generation entering into the workforce, I think it's going to change a lot more rapidly. This is a, a big question, but I think it's a good one to end on. So with this like growing mental health support system, do you think it's enough to fend off an apparent consumer fascination with artists dying and dying young, especially? No, I think we need to start normalizing uh, the prioritization of well-being. I think that if we make that a standard in the record industry that, yes, let's when you get signed to a record label, you're going to have to do dance lessons, vocal training, and daily yoga sessions or weekly chats with a therapist. But normalizing a bit that your mental health is something that you need to work on upkeeping on a day-to-day -day basis, just like your nutrition and your physical health. Uh, and I think that the more we can normalize that, the more we'll avoid these issues altogether rather than trying to go back and attack the issue after it's already been propagating for so long. It's better to get it, get it at the root uh, and cut the issue off before it even leads to anything as serious as substance abuse. As much as my article is focusing on the issues within the music industry, I, I do think that there's a lot of positive things to look at. And I think that COVID and this pandemic has really forced people to sit down and reflect about what they really value. Um, and especially in the music industry, it's caused a huge disruption in the way we do things. Um, so I think that when we come out of this and when we get back to touring, especially in live events, uh, I think there's gonna be a really refreshed perspective about how we can best take care of our artists and make sure that everyone is physically, mentally, emotionally well, and also creating great music that can <laughs> provide for everyone and lead to happy careers. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for chatting with us today, Camille. Is there a way for people to contact you if they want to get in touch? 
Yeah, people can connect with me on LinkedIn, Camille Lopez Silvero, or they can DM me on Instagram. It's chameleonaire.98. Those would be probably the two places where I'm most responsive. Nice. And we just want to say to end this podcast, because it is Mental Health Awareness Month, if you or anyone you know is struggling with substance abuse or mental health issues, you can contact the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's national hotline at 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. Free of charge, 24-7, 365 days a year. How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. As part of our effort to equip artists with the power of music analytics, we've just rolled out a new artist tier, which you can sign up for at app.chartmetric.com slash plan slash artist for about the price of a coffee per week. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and podcast notes are at blog.chartmetric.com. You can also subscribe there for additional insights delivered to your inbox right after we publish. Did we mention we have a YouTube channel? That's right, subscribe for Chartmetric tutorials and tips for indie artists. Follow our thoughts on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Chartmetric. That's Chartmetric, no S. That's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.